You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. Hi everyone, I'm Fran um, and I'm a member here at Emmanuel Community Church. Uh, I'm bringing you the reading today and we are in 1 Samuel chapter 13, which is on page 282 uh, of the Church Bibles. Um, I'll give you a second and it's on the screens as well, I think. Great. So, starting at verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geber, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought... Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Thanks, Fran. If you've got a Bible, do keep it open at 1 Samuel 13. I wonder, when was the, when was the last time you did something foolish? When was the last time you did something foolish? Well, I suppose a better question, or a question we need to ask, is what is foolish? Let me give you some possible examples. Now, let's say you get invited to go canoeing with some friends. They're experienced canoeists, and know the do's and don'ts of the water. Now, let's say ten minutes into the canoeing, as you're on your downstroke, you casually knock the right pocket of your shorts, only to see your phone jump out of your pocket... 
over the side of the canoe into the murky canal waters, never to be found again. Is this foolish? Let's say you're on holiday and your brain is switched off. One of your children comes and wants to test your math skills. They give you a sum, 11 times 12. Let's say that person answering takes five or six attempts to get the answer right, which of course is 132. Is that foolish? Or let's say one of your children bakes a cake. They've taken the time to get the ingredients, mix it together, put it in the oven, get it out the oven. They're dividing the cake amongst the family, but you're concerned that your piece is a little on the small side. So you decide that when everyone's left the kitchen, you'll go back and cut yourself a bigger piece of cake. Let's just say that a child who baked the cake has memorized how much cake was left and asks you if you're the one who's taken more cake. You confess, claiming that you bought the ingredients in the first place, so in a sense it is, you should, and you are bigger, so therefore you should have more anyway. Is that foolish? Well, when the Bible talks about foolish or being a fool, it's not talking about accidentally losing your phone or not being good at sums. When the Bible talks about being foolish, it's referring to when we disobey God's word. That is, we don't do the things that we should and we do the things that we shouldn't. Now, before we start looking down on people who are foolish, we have to just pause a moment and acknowledge that we're all foolish. We all, all of us struggle with following God's word. Why? Because trusting God and obeying his word is often not straightforward nor simple. Sometimes common sense, our own feelings, the culture around us is telling us to do what God commands us not to do. And to obey God at these times is really difficult. What God is asking us to do seems foolish to just about everyone else except God. So what are we to do in those moments? Or to put it a different way with lots of F's. How can we move from floundering with foolishness to flourishing as faithful followers of King Jesus? Good job I've got my teeth in. Let me say it again. How can we move from floundering with foolishness to flourishing as faithful followers of King Jesus. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to see three things. They're on the screen there. Put them up already. We're going to see the floundering king. We're going to see the foolish king. And then we're going to see the faithful king. Let me pray and then we'll dig into the passage. Father God, we are foolish people. We often do things that are contrary to your word because we think we know better. Even when there's great pressure on us, Father, we often capitulate and do the wrong thing. But help us this morning to be able to move away from foolishness and to flourish as your faithful followers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the floundering king. Now, Saul did have a high point, and it was in chapter 11. If you remember, he goes up against Nahash and the Ammonites, and he's empowered by the Spirit of God, and he defeats Nahash and the Ammonites. Now, remember, Nahash's name means snake. 
So we started to think, didn't we, that maybe Saul is the serpent crusher that God promised back in Genesis 3. Maybe Saul is the great hope and saviour of all mankind. Well, actually, two chapters later, but some time later, the answer we're going to see is a resounding no. In fact, Saul, rather than being a new and better Adam, we're going to see that he's actually just like Adam in Genesis 3. Now, I say sometimes later, because as we had the verses read, we meet a guy called Jonathan. And we later learn that Jonathan is Saul's son. So obviously, some time has passed. In chapters 9, 10 and 11, Saul is roughly 30 years old. And now, in chapter 13, he's got a son. Now, whether he had a son really early, and he was on Jeremy Kyle and stuff like that, I wasn't sure if it was his, but a DNA test said it was. Or maybe just time has passed, and now his lad is 20, roughly about 20, because he must be that age. He's leading a garrison of a 1,000 men. So we could assume that Saul is in his 50s at this point. Let me read uh, 1 to 4, because you're looking at me puzzled like you don't believe me. Okay, so Saul, it says, was 30 years old when he became king. That's true. Sa- uh, 1 Samuel 9, 10, 11, we'll vouch for that. He reigned over Israel 42 years. So now this is part of his reign after he became king. Verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, 1,000 were with Jonathan, that's his son, at Gibar in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibar, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. So things in this chapter start off well. Jonathan has gone and attacked the Philistines at this outpost. And Saul, being Saul, he takes credit for his son's achievements, doesn't he? Amazing. There are, however, a few problems with what we just read. Firstly, 1 Samuel 9, uh, verse 16, tells us that part of Saul's job as king is to go and defeat the Philistines. So it should be Saul who's fighting the Philistines, not Jonathan. Secondly, we learn that the Philistines, lo and behold, haven't taken kindly to being attacked. We're told that Israel has become obnoxious Or, better translation, Israel has become a stench to the Philistines, and now the Philistines want revenge. And thirdly, back in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel, the prophet of God, told Saul, whenever he was at um, Gilgal, yeah, whenever he was at Gilgal, he must wait seven days, because then Samuel will come, Samuel will offer sacrifices and then Samuel will tell Saul what to do next. So we're left with this tension, aren't we? Will Saul be able to wait in the face of a bunch of furious Philistine soldiers who are advancing on him? Well, let's read on verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. 
When the Israelites saw what their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. Now, here's the situation, okay, because we've got to have a bit of sympathy for Saul, I think. There's a massive army that's advancing on him. It's so big that the soldiers are described as being like sand in the seashore. Saul's army is greatly outnumbered. Saul's army start to do a Saul and they start hiding in caves. Must have been a wicked game of hide and seek back then. All these guys really good at hiding. But we're also told that some of them start to leave as they cross the Jordan to the land of Gad. Then those who remained are quaking with fear. So this big army, some of Saul's army's going, the rest are quaking with fear. Saul waits seven days, but Samuel's still not there. And then finally, what's left of this petrified army starts to leave. So that's the situation. It's not an easy situation Saul is left with. The prophet of God, Samuel, has spoken to Saul, telling him to wait. But everything is crying out for Saul to do something and to do it now. You see, friends, trusting God and obeying his word sometimes is neither straightforward nor simple. Sometimes we find ourselves in positions where it seems the only logical, reasonable and sensible thing to do is to reject God's word for something else. Sometimes the foolish thing seems to be the thing God is asking us to do. And friends, this is why we have to show compassion and grace to our friends who are struggling with same-sex attraction. You see, the word of God clearly teaches that to engage in this kind of sexual activity is to disobey God's word and would be foolish. However, trusting God and obeying his word is really straightforward, nor simple. When you have strong feelings inside telling you to act, when our culture is telling you to live out those feelings and be your authentic self, when the laws of our land support your sexual preference, and when some churches are saying that God's main priority is for you to be happy, when this is the climate we're living in, then when it says, when what God says may appear to look, sorry, when this is the climate we're living in, then what God says may appear to lots of people, and even some people here this morning, as the foolish thing. You see, we're to adopt a posture of grace towards those floundering in foolishness, whether it's inside the church or outside the church. Because foolishness is often brought on by complex and highly pressurised circumstances. And again, hear me, whilst not excusing the foolishness, there may be significant reasons why that person has acted the way they have. And grace is what is needed. Now sometimes, however, people are just plain foolish like that person at the beginning who went back for the larger piece of cake and needed a firm rebuke. But here's the key. 
whether it's grace or a rebuke, all foolishness needs to be taken to the faithful king. All foolishness, whether we're treating people with grace or rebuke, needs to be taken to the faithful king. Now I'm jumping ahead of myself. The point I'm trying to make here and what we're seeing in the passage is it's not easy to obey God and be faithful to his word at times. Because everything else is against us. It wasn't easy for Saul and it's not easy at times for us today. But let's see what Saul does in verse 9. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making this offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. So Saul does what he's not meant to do. Saul offers the sacrifice without Samuel. Now what's really interesting is Saul mustn't think that he's done anything wrong. Because when Samuel does turn up, Saul goes out to greet him. And what we know from Saul, if things are difficult, then he would normally hide. So, we've seen what Saul did. Now let's see how Samuel responds. And that takes us to the second point, the foolish king. Have a look at Samuel's response in verse 11. What have you done? Now that's actually a reoccurring question in the Bible. If you know your Bible, that's the question God gives to Eve in the garden. What have you done? It's the question God gives to Cain after he's just killed his brother Abel. What have you done? And it's the question he gives to Achan in the book of Joshua. When Achan has stolen the goods, hid them and lied, God comes to him and says, What have you done? But Saul, like Adam in the garden, is going to make a lot of excuses up to answer that question. Let's read on. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So trusting God and obeying his word is not straightforward, nor is it simple. But listen to this. But it is necessary. It's necessary because it's God's word. And God's word is always good and it's always right. Even if we don't feel like it is or even if our culture is saying something different. God has given us his word for our flourishing. This word is light in a dark world. This word is hope in hopeless times. This word brings joy to the despairing. It brings purpose to those without direction. Obeying this word shows whose king we obey. Obedience doesn't save us. But obedience is the desire of a saved person. And when we do foolish things, which we will as Christians, the right thing to do is to confess that to God and to others and to look to repent. You see, Saul doesn't do that. When he's confronted with his foolishness, he makes excuses. 
So what about us this morning? When God's word confronts our lives, do we make excuses or do we look to repent? But you might say, oh yeah, but Chris, Chris, if you you understood the circumstances, then you'd realise the only thing I could do, Chris, is disobey God's word. That's why I made that business deal. That's why I slept with that person. Chris, you don't know the circumstances. And you're right, I don't know the circumstances, but God does. And we cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. God holds us to account for all our foolishness. And what about churches when the word of God confronts churches? Well, some churches will submit to the word of God. But others, because of maybe pressure within the church or pressure outside the church, they're going to start making excuses and move into foolishness. This foolishness is backed by excuse making and not humble repentance. And friends, let's just be honest. The empty churches we see in our communities, they're going to stay empty and they will finally close. Be closed because their foolishness and their folly lies in this. They have refused to obey the word of God. Let that not be so for ECC. Now let's look at how Samuel responds to Saul's excuses. Verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went to Gibeah in Benjamin. Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. But you notice again the references to Genesis. What is the disobedience or what is the foolishness? He has not kept the Lord's command. It was the same for Saul. It was the same for Adam. Foolishness is to disobey God and live not as God is king, but as we're king. And what's the result of foolishness? The result of foolishness is loss. Saul will lose the kingdom that God has given him. Because of his foolishness and lack of repentance. God is going to give that kingdom to someone after his own heart. Who we know to be David. And friends if we continue to flounder in foolishness. Without any repentance. We will lose spending eternity with God. Here's the thing. A persistent intentional life of foolishness. Is a life that doesn't know Jesus as your king. You see, one of the marks of being a Christian is a desire to follow Jesus and his commands. Again, the Christian is going to do plenty of foolish things each and every day. But this foolishness is often met with confession and repentance and a willingness to try and move away from that foolishness. Even when, even when the circumstances of life are making obedience neither straightforward nor simple so how can we move from floundering with foolishness 
to flourishing as faithful followers of King Jesus? Well, finally, the answer is this. We need the faithful king. Now, we already said, haven't we, that Saul was not the new Adam. He would not crush the serpent and rescue the people. Rather, Saul was just like Adam. He hid. He didn't keep God's command. He made excuses. Saul was a king, just like all the other nations. All the other nations rejected God and his word. Saul couldn't rescue the people of Israel from their enemies, let alone from themselves. No, Saul was the foolish king. But we know that's not the end of the story. As we've just said, there's hints that God's going to give this kingdom to another person. We know him, David. David was a better king, but David still had his own foolish, foolishness that he dealt with. But the difference is David would confess that and would repent of that foolishness. But again, as good as David was, David is not the answer. Now you see, many years after David and Saul would come a man who not only had the heart of God, but he was God himself in the flesh. This man was born from the line of David. This man was the new and better Adam who would perfectly obey God where Adam and Saul failed. This obedience would not be straightforward nor simple, but it was necessary. You see, friends, without Jesus' perfect obedience, the Father would not accept any sacrifice on our behalf. Without Jesus' perfect obedience, there would be no substitute for our sins. Without Jesus' perfect obedience, we would still be left floundering in our foolishness, resigned to losing an eternity of joy with God the Father. Now I just want to finish just by looking a little bit at Matthew 26. This is the night before Jesus dies. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. And the reason I want to just touch on this passage is I I need you to see that Jesus' obedience is neither straightforward nor simple. Let me read the passage. I'm going to read some of it and then uh, I might skip a bit, John, so keep up. There we go. So verse 36, Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going on a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then just skipping down to verse 45, John. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So picture the scene again. This is difficult. Saul, when he was faced, he had lots of things going on. It was easy for him to make an excuse and say, I'm going to just do this offering because they're coming towards me. And Jesus had lots of excuses. His disciples couldn't even stay awake. Judas, the betrayer, was coming. Peter would deny him. The crowd who shouted, save us, a week 
before are going to be saying crucify him. Jesus knows that he's going to face separation from the father when he takes our sin. The cup is a reference to the wrath of God. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he takes God's righteous anger against our foolishness and sin. All of those things Jesus knows. And Jesus could have made excuses. He could have said, listen guys, no, this is too much. You've had your chance. I was here and you rejected me. It's on you. But he doesn't. Jesus faithfully obeys. But let's not kid ourselves. Jesus did not simply trust his father. Rather, Jesus excruciatingly trusted. Jesus trusted in the face of extreme stress. He trusted in the face of massive opposition. He trusted in the light of unfaithful friends. He trusted in the light of his own personal suffering. He trusted God by obeying his words. And it is a huge mistake, friends, to think that Jesus' obedience to God was an easy thing to do. You see, trusting God was not straightforward. It was not simple, but it was necessary for our salvation. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, very you're welcome. I'm sorry I've gone on. I know it's hot. I'll be finishing very soon. But I want to ask you that question that's asked time and time again in the Bible. What have you done? And I want to reframe it slightly to add Jesus. What have you done with Jesus? You see, Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection cannot be ignored. Will you foolishly reject Jesus? Stand as your own king or queen, living by your own word? Or will you repent of your foolishness and follow Jesus, obeying his word, even when it's difficult? And if you're a Christian here this morning, if you would say, Chris, I am floundering with foolishness. I am not flourishing as a faithful follower. This is my word to you today. Remember your king. Your king who faithfully obeyed for you. Your king who obeyed when it was horrendous. Your king who obeyed knowing the pain he would face. Your king who obeyed from love. This is the king who saves you not just from sin and death and judgment, but he saves us from ourselves. He's a king who cheers us on. He's a king who gives us grace each day. He's a king who will never leave or never forsake. He's a king who's always faithful, even when we're foolish. And he's the king who gives his life so our foolishness can be forever forgiven. This is your faithful king. Remember him. Repent to him. Rejoice in him. This is how we move from floundering in foolishness to flourishing as his faithful followers. Friends, trusting God and obeying his word is often not straightforward, nor is it simple. But we have a king who is worthy to follow, even when it costs us along the way. Let me pray. Father God, we want to again just confess we are so much like Saul. We are so much uh, 
involved in our own foolishness, yet we're so thankful that there is forgiveness, that there is a faithful king, someone who obeyed in a hard and difficult way for us. And Father, help us that when we face those times when obedience is not straightforward nor simple, we would remember our king, our king who would sweat drops of blood uh, in, in obeying. Father, help us to be willing to wrestle in the difficult times and help us always to be willing to obey you, we pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk.